Judges, you know this book. This is at a time when Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, which is the problem. It's always the problem when everyone does what, what is right in his or her own eyes. When I'm doing what's right because this is what I think is right. This is my truth. We're in trouble because there's only one truth. There's one standard of righteousness and perfection and justice. One truth. That truth is Jesus. But let's, let's read this. I, I'm, right now, I'm just, I am just literally haven't even looked at my notes yet. I'm talking off the top of my head. These are things that have been rolling around inside my brain for the last week or so. But Judges chapter 10 brings us to a point in time in the Judges where, to be fair, things are not good. And you might say, well, Rick, isn't that the entire book of Judges? Well, yeah, it is. It is. But it gets worse as the book goes on. Chapter 10 begins now after Avimelech died. We talked about Avimelech a week ago Wednesday. This guy was a train wreck. Avimelech the train wreck. You could just remember that. We called him Abismelech. After he died, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, arose to save Israel. I know you think Dodo's funny. We'll make a pun on that later. And he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried in Shamir. After him, Ya'er, the Gileadite, arose to judge or ju and judged Israel for 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities in the land of Gilead that are called Havot, Ya'er, to this day, which means cities or towns of Ya'er. And Ya'er died and was buried in Kamon. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Zidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. They afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For 18 years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in Gilead in the land of the Amorites. The sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight against, also against Judah and Benjamin and the house of Ephraim. Much of Judges is happening more to the northern part of Israel, Ephraim in the north, but now Judah and Benjamin, they're getting drawn into this, this mess, this catastrophe as well. And so it says, verse 10, then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites and the sons of Ammon and the Philistines, also when the Zidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. By the way, that's not the most jarring thing you'll hear this morning. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in time or in the time of your distress. The sons of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us. This day, So they put away the foreign gods and from among them and served the Lord and he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Lord, in this relationship we have with you, we recognize that we are faithless and rebellious and sinful people. And yet you have chosen to call us saints, holy ones, simply by faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray this morning, increase our faith. May we trust you more, lean into you more, learn what faithfulness is more than ever before. In these waning days, Father, may we stay true to you as you have always been true to us. And we pray you'll lean us into your word and Father, for some, your word will be comfort this morning. For others, conviction. I pray, Lord, that your word would take us where you need us to go. By the power of your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you made it. You made it through Blue Monday, January 16th, this last Monday. I don't know if you knew this. It's called Blue Monday. It was a term that was coined by Dr. Cliff Arnall in 2005, a British 
doctor, psychiatrist. He worked out a formula, literally, to show how this particular midwinter Monday is especially bad. Here's the formula. W plus capital D minus small d times TQ times M times NA. So if you can get that formula down, you'll understand what makes Blue Monday. Here's how it works. W is weather plus capital D, holiday debt, minus little d, monthly salary, uh, times T, which is times since the Christmas holidays, times Q, which is the time since quitting my New Year's resolutions, (laughs) times M, which is low motivational levels, times NA, which is need for action, and it equals Blue Monday. And so he tried to see, is there a dip, is there a time in the year where it's lowest for most people? Turns out it was just a marketing strategy for travel agencies. (laughs) Blue Monday, time to go to Hawaii, you know? Uh, However, to combat seasonal winter depression, skynews.com reports the following, so you may wanna jot this down. Health experts recommend a mix of Exercise, fruits, veggies, and vitamin D to help raise good mood and fend off January blues. (laughs) And Paul is our vegetable man. Yes, I got a better idea. How about hope? How about hope? As in Isaiah 42, verse one, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice or make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. By the way, I don't know why we keep coming back to that verse over and over and over. Maybe some of you still haven't embraced it or heard it yet. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. The Hebrew wait expectantly, yechal, is hope. The coastlands, or we could translate that, the islands will hope in Torah. Hope in Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, hope in the truth, hope in the Lord, hope in the one that Torah tells us more about than anything else, and that is Jesus, that we would have hope. The psalmist uses the same word, that word yachal, in Psalm 130, verse seven, O Israel, hope in the Lord, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him there is abundant redemption. You may recall the scene after Jesus had healed a man with a shriveled hand in the synagogue on Shabbat. Matthew called Isaiah 42 prophecy fulfilled. What we just read, Matthew said, Jesus fulfilled it in that moment. And he quotes the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures in Matthew chapter 12, verse 21, which says, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Hope, hope will blow away Blue Monday. Hope lifts the spirits. Hope causes me to see beyond my immediate or present circumstances, no matter what they are, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us, Romans 5, 5. So is your hope in the Lord? Or is your hope that your job's gonna get better, or that your life will finally make a decent turn, or that 2023 will be better than 2022, or is your hope in your family or your spouse or in a situation changing? Oh, Israel. Oh, church, hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. We need to start there this morning. Because the Shofa team, the the judges, deliverers, guardians, as we've called them, were not Israel's hope. They keep being raised up, 12 throughout this book, raised up to deliver, to rescue, to save, to, to rule over Israel, as it were, to judge. 
And yet they are not Israel's hope because every time a judge goes away, their hope goes away. Their lives take a bad turn. Over and over and over on this nauseating carousel as we've seen in the book of Judges so far. From Gideon to Netanyahu, Israel's leaders have never been their hope and are not today. It's not in patriarchs, it's not in prophets, it's not in priests, it's not in kings. And with all due respect, it's not in their national home. Israel is not the hope of the people of Israel. Their national anthem sings that it is, Hatikva. If you've ever heard the Jewish national anthem, and I love the song. It's very moving, and the words in English say, as long as the Jewish spirit is yearning deep in the heart, with eyes turned toward the east, looking towards Zion, then our hope, the 2,000-year-old hope will not be lost to be a free people in our land, the land of Zion and Jerusalem. The 2,000-year-old hope is not the land of Israel. The 2,000-year-old hope is Jesus Christ. Oh, Israel, oh, church, hope in the Lord. By the way, our hope is not in apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, or teachers. Our hope is not with a church or in the church or with the saints, as precious as all of that truly is. Oh, saints, hope in the Lord. Oh, church, hope in Jesus. He is our hope. And he is the hope that lifts the spirit. And we have made, may, have been, may have gotten by Blue Monday, but there are likely darker days before the end. I don't say that to discourage, I just say that to say be ready. There will probably be darker days before Jesus calls us out, unless he calls us out today, which would be marvelous and is my prayer and my hope. But my friends, here's a prophetic insight for you. I've been asked by some, Rick, are you gonna do a prophecy update now that we're into January? And I may, or I may just wait till I get back from Israel, or I don't know, we'll just see. I have found lately there is so much prophecy in almost every time we open the Bible that I'm almost not sure how to just do it all at once. But I'll give you one prophetic insight. You're gonna, you might wanna jot this down, it's very important. Prophecy update, the end must come. The end is coming. The Bible declares there will be an end to this age. It's not just gonna roll on forever and a day. The end must come. The Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. Isaiah chapter 12, or chapter two, verse 12. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And the day of the Lord, by the way, describes it's a long period of time, it's a long day. Biblically speaking, if you run it down and study all the verses having to do with the day of the Lord, it really begins with the day of Christ, which is the rapture of the church. And after that rolls through a seven-year tribulation period and then continues on through the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. That whole thing is the day of the Lord. It will, it must come. And we can think, not in my lifetime, you're probably wrong. The day of the Lord must come, the end must come. My question is, and I keep reading the headlines as I shared with you a few moments ago, and my question is, when will God say enough? At what point is enough enough? When is God just gonna be done with humanity's rebellion? I wanna give this to you in three parts this morning. Part one is Judges Begins. We'll call it divine stabilization, divine stabilization. Now we're gonna blow right by two judges, Tola and Yair. We get very little information on, on what these two judges actually did. In fact, some will take uh, Tola and Yair, the first two mentioned here, and, and lump them together with Shamgar, Ibzon, Elon, and Avdan, uh, names that no one repeats, right? These five judges or six judges, we hear very little about them. They're named, we know they judged, we for most of them know how long, but that's all we get. 
And so some call them the minor judges. Listen, there are no minor judges. But they're minor in terms of the fact that we don't know much. Kind of like the minor prophets who were not minor by any estimation in what they prophesied about the Christ and about what was to come. And yet, because they're shorter books, because they're all lumped all together, they call them the minor prophets. Well, let's dig in and see if we can discover anything, glean anything about these two minor guardians. Verses one and two. After Avimelech died, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, arose to save Israel. He lived in Shamir, in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried in Shamir. Note this about Tola, stability and order. What we can pull out of these two verses is a sense of stability and order. Notice that it begins after Avimelech. After Abismelech, that self-ordained, fiery, antichrist type of destroyer, the guy who just messed things up royally there in Israel, it was after that that God raised up Tola to save Israel. After this abysmal person. God does that, you know. After, after antichrist, what happens? You know, Jesus Christ comes and establishes the kingdom. So it's, after that God raises up, and in this case, he raises up Tola. Now, Tola's name means worm. Uh, what's his brother's name, Slug? <laughs> you know, maybe he has a sister who's named Annalid. That's earthworm for you scientists, yeah. His parents must have been so proud of their little maggots, <laughs> inching their way through life. If God can use a worm to bring stability and order to Israel, he can use you and he can use me. And by the way, God likes order. There is a sense of order here with Tola, the way it's even written that he saved Israel, he lived in Shamir, he judged 23 years, he died and he was buried in Shamir. There's no mention of war, there's no mention of calamity, there's no mention of anything outrageous going on, it's just he's there. And he's there 23 years, and he was born, lived, and died there in Shamir in, in this township. That's good. Hey, God will be the stability of your times, Isaiah 33, verse 6 tells us. A wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge, the fear of the Lord is his treasure. That is so wonderful to be reminded of, such a truth. He is the stability in your time. So if your times are feeling unstable, you don't need less Jesus, you need more. If your life is spinning out of your hands, you need to be where Jesus is. You need to be in the word of God. You need to be with the saints. And as I said earlier, even just standing in the assembly with song going on, whether it's a cappella, thanks to Ira Sankey, or it's with the band, thanks to John Adelot, you need to be in the worship because he is your stability. He is your hope. He brings order. 1 Corinthians 13, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. There ought to be peace. And when there is not peace among us, it makes you wonder if our focus isn't a little off. Where Jesus is, where his spirit is, there's gonna be peace. Now, I'm gonna come back to Tola in a bit, but then there's Yair, verse three. Then Yair the Gileadite arose and judged Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities in the land of Gilead that are called Havot, Yair, to this day, and Yair died and was buried in Kamon. Now, aside from the subtle indication of polygamy, 30 sons, not including daughters. So clearly this Yair, I can only assume, had a number of, of wives. And by the way, the Bible acknowledges this many times with many of the patriarchs, but never approves it. That's something people need to understand about the scriptures. The scriptures just are what happened. The scriptures speak truth. The scriptures acknowledge all of the great men and women of the past and their sin. This is how humanity is. That's the way the Bible deals. I always appreciate that because there's nothing sugar-coated or glossy. This is just the way it was. 
So this Yair is a, a guardian, a judge in the days of Israel. He did good by Israel, but he had multiple wives. Didn't the Lord say not to do that? Yeah, did he do it anyway? Yeah, it's the way it was. But aside from that, the reference to 30 sons, 30 cities, and 30 donkeys tells us something that we can, again, glean from this passage. Aside from the stability and the order that we see in the days of Tola, now we see protection, we see peace, and we see prosperity. How so? 30 sons. He had 30 sons who, along with this Yair, apparently were maintaining order over these 30 cities. 30 sons, the Bible implies, at least in those days, that many sons were a means of protection. Let me read you the verse, Psalm 127, verse three. Behold, children, which is literally many sons, are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. So the, the sons are described here as arrows in a quiver, as protection for a people. Man, you got a lot of sons, you got some protection around you. 30 donkeys. 30 sons, means of protection. 30 donkeys, there's your picture of peace because they're riding donkeys, not horses. Horses charge into war. Donkeys go clippity-clop in days of peace. And this is something we've seen across history. By the way, there are two different words for donkey in the Hebrew scriptures. Two different Hebrew words. There is chamor, which is a word used of a pack animal. So if someone is walking along with his chamor, that's gonna be an animal that is used for carrying a burden and, and probably not much for riding as much as for carrying packs and baggage and, and, and stuff. But then there's ayir. And ayir, which is funny, it's the, kind of the opposite of yair, which is our, our guardian here. Not yair, but Ayir, and Ayir is a foal or a colt and is specifically referred to when the animal is for riding. That's the word that's used here. 30 sons riding 30 foals, 30 colts, 30 Ayirs. These are riding donkeys that again are a show of times of peace because you're not in a hurry. You're not in a hurry. This is just easy transportation and you Bible students recall Jesus in his first coming. Remember, he, he rode on a donkey's colt. The word is ayir in the Hebrew, in a show of peace. Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on an ayir, the foal of a donkey. So this is a, an animal for times of peace. At the return of Christ, of course, it's completely different. Revelation 19, 11, I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. In righteousness, he judges and wages war. He comes in peace, riding on a donkey. He's gonna come to wage war, riding, riding on a mighty white steed. When God has had enough when God says that's it. So 30 sons, protection, 30 cults, a picture here of peace, and finally, 30 cities, which would then indicate prosperity. Protection, peace, prosperity. By the way, what do an unruly people do in times of protection, peace, and prosperity? They go woke. When days are easy, inevitably, invariably, we gotta find something to stir up the boredom. And this is so typical of humanity, and we see it in verse six, that the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtaroth and the gods of Aram and the gods of Zidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the sons of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. My friends, we have just reached the apex of faith crisis in the book of Judges in that verse. This is the longest listing of the serving of other gods in the book of Judges. This is a 
an unsettling verse because what the Lord does here through the scripture is allude to seven classes of pagan gods. In other words, this is a a, a complete, full-blown idolatry. And it is an absolutely shocking response to 45 plus years of stability and order, peace, protection, and prosperity. Unless, unless you're a student of human nature, then it's not shocking at all. Then you realize, well, that's exactly what we do. When things are difficult, when things are hard, when things are challenging, when we are under threat, we gather together, we unify, we fight back, as in World War II. But when life is easy, when we are at rest, when we have prosperity, ah, we gotta get into something. And so we start to rebel in the cities. We start to burn things down. We start to shoot and kill people or stab people. By the way, when are we gonna have knife control? Look at what is going on right now in America, the most prosperous nation ever to exist on the face of the earth. What is wrong with us? What, we don't like the freedom? We don't want the ease? We don't want days of rest? My daughter Naomi the other day was complaining about having to wash her clothes. I said, honey, you don't have to use a washboard. (laughs) You walk upstairs, you put it in a machine, you hit a button, whoa, that's a lot of work. We just don't know, but this is history. This is not America, this is history. When people are at ease, start to relax, they start looking around for what they can upend, for what problems they can cause, for what they can get into. And so we see this right here. You've heard the old saying, idle hands are the devil's workshop, right? It's a good saying. It's actually a paraphrase of a scripture. Not a good paraphrase, but it's a paraphrase of Proverbs 16, 27, which says, a worthless man digs up evil. <laughs> a worthless man, you know what the phrase worthless man is? It is literally an idle man. An idle man. Someone who's bored goes digging up evil. It's more than just idle man. Listen to this in the Hebrew. Let me just say it to you. Uh, in the Hebrew, the word idle is Belial, a man of Belial stirs up evil. Belial, we've seen in the New Testament, is a word used of the devil. So it's interesting how we do this, too much time on our hands, ease in our days, the false presumption of peace and prosperity and unruly humanity goes looking for trouble. Personally, community-wide, nationally, it's just what we do. And, and it's a typical statement on all of human history. You can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had it perfect. Perfect. I mean, think about life in a garden. Fruit, veggies, veggies, run around naked. You didn't have to do anything. What a wonderful existence. And they had to mess it up because, well, A worthless man, an idle man, digs up evil. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse three says, while they are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. And this is what we see happen. Another article for you in the Telegraph UK. So I wanna thank the British people for providing this for us this morning. (laughs) Both articles are really, came out of Great Britain. Telegraph UK, the the title of this article is Young People Sacrifice Belief in God on the Altar of Satanism. Just listen to this. I want to read this out for you. Quote, with our rituals, there's never any murder. There's never any sacrifice. There's never any blood rites to Satan. We don't worship the devil. We don't cast magic spells, unquote. In fact, as the global order of Satan UK as well as other leaders and members of of satanic groups around the world insist, it would be difficult to spot a satanist walking down the street. Yet while the macabre occult rituals, virgin sacrifices, chalices of blood, and belief in the actual devil are a thing of the past, (laughs) satanism is luring increasing numbers of young people disillusioned with outdated and dogmatic traditional religions to join its fold by offering an alternative to stuffy traditional faiths. 
The Sunday Telegraph has spoken to leaders and members of satanic groups around the world who claim that the opportunity Satanism offers people to engage in activism and campaign on issues such as gender and sexuality is part of the appeal for the younger members, particularly those who are increasingly less likely to declare themselves, <clears throat> excuse me, as Christian. Chaplain Leopold a 32-year-old London-based undertaker co-runs the Global Order of Satan UK, which he said has seen a 200% increase in membership over the past five years. He says, I'd love to be able to claim that we could pat ourselves on the back and say, yes, we've done our infernal work here and we're successfully declining the numbers of Christians, but I think it's a far more complex issue than that. He said two factors were responsible, the, increasing, the, the decreasing popularity of traditional dogmatic religions and, quote, a movement toward self-identification and self-realization. Let me just insert right there that that has been Satanism since day one. Self-identification and self-realization is at the heart of Satanism. And Satan isn't so much concerned that you name him or not because he's gonna get named as I seek the self. Says this is particularly among younger people who don't want to be identified as part of a prescriptive dogmatic religion and rather want to identify as their own self-beliefs and self-realization which is this guy is saying, which is what Satanism offers. So we often say that we're sort of the religion for those who don't like the oppression of previous religions. Now, aside from the obvious issue, if it's not about Satan, why are you calling yourself the global church of Satan? <laughs> oh, no, we don't even believe in Satan. Yes, you do, because you're functioning as his followers. You're doing exactly what he wants you to do, and I guarantee you, behind the veiled curtain, there are active Satanists, and these things that they say aren't going on are still going on. But even so, if it's all settling into the self-identification, self self-realization, it's all about the me and my self-truth, then you are walking down that same road. Satanism is religion. Satanism, by the way, is not just religion. It is oppressive religion. Self-identification, self-realization is oppressive. At least that, that old-time religion Christianity. Some might call it stuffy. You know what? True Christianity still teaches faith in the one hope. Faith in Jesus. Faith in our hope. Why the article about Satanism? Because look at verse six. And it's interesting to me that it's verse six. I mean, that's just, you know a one-off there for you because there weren't verses in the original Hebrew text, but still, wow, this is what people do. They come to a place of ease and they start to dig up evil. And we see these seven classes of these different gods, of the Baals and the Asherot, and, and then of, of the different um, places around. This is what you could call the Canaanization of Israel. And this is where the Canaanites, remember, Israel came into the land and was told, drive out the Canaanites. Why? One, it was judgment because of their vile satanic practices. But two, it was so that Israel itself would not become Canaanized. Well, guess what's happening? And we could call this the complete Canaanization. This is where Israel has completely given itself over in this canonization process, and it is no different in form or in function than the self-realization of global Satanism. It is the rejection of God. It comes to the same ultimate end, and my friends, God is not having it. What does it take for God to say enough? Part two, part two. So that was divine stabilization. This is divine exasperation. Divine exasperation, verse nine. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. They afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For 18 years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in Gilead in the land of the Amorites. Let me remind you where that is. That is the region of Gad in the half tribe of Manasseh. This is now on the eastern shores of the Jordan River. 
Gad, who wanted to stay on that side, who didn't want to cross into the land. Had they crossed into the land, at least they would have had the dividing line of a river for some sense of protection, and yet they're out there in unprotected territory, half Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben. And that's where this is taking place, this land of Gilead. The sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan then to fight against Judah and Benjamin and the house of Ephraim so that Israel was greatly distressed. If, if you just keep this in mind, Judah is in the south. Judah and Benjamin, right in between Judah and Benjamin is Jerusalem. So this is the southern area of Israel. Ephraim and the other tribes are to the north. And then half Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben are to the east of the Jordan River. Well, now they're crossing in. The enemy, the Ammonites, are crossing into Israel and coming into Judah, and they're attacking there and causing trouble for all of the people of Israel because all of the people of Israel are giving themselves over to false gods. It's divine punishment. This is what God has done in the past. It's what he continues to do. In fact, it's interesting, this is how God so often will respond. I'm gonna read the passage to you, Romans chapter one. It's familiar to many of you. It's a prime example. What we're reading in Judges is a prime example of exactly what Paul describes here, Romans one, verse 28. When he says, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. If you don't want me, if you don't wanna walk with me, if you wanna reject the truth, then I'm gonna hand you over to what you want. And what we want when we reject God becomes our punishment. He handed them over, gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And listen to how it's described. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they, did, they, they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not, not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And when we see a society going down this road and you can start checking boxes on this list, you know God is giving a people over to their own choices. God, we are very close. I believe right now, historically, we are very close to that final moment when God says, enough. Get my ambassadors out. I'm giving them over to war with themselves. We're right on the verge of this. This divine punishment when humanity wants to serve false God and come under human oppressors. People think that independence from morality or independence from purity or holiness or church and God equals freedom. Hey, no rules, no laws, I can do whatever I want. That's freedom. No, that's oppression. You have just put on the heaviest chains you could possibly bear. And it's such a twisted thing, but it's, again, so human in thinking. Back in Judges chapter 10, verse 10, then the Israelites, after they were greatly distressed, the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, we have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baal, same song, 27th verse. It happens over and over. We rebel against God, we reject God, he gives us over, okay, then live how you want. We live how we want and realize it's terrible. So we say, oh Lord, we're so sorry. And Israel did it over and over and over, perhaps you have, over and over. We keep playing the same game. Verse 11, then the Lord said to the sons of Israel, okay, hang on a second, this is different. This has changed in the book of Judges at this time. The Lord said to the sons of Israel. He speaks directly to Israel as a people. I don't know how that worked. I don't know if there just began to be a number of them who started going, waking up and going, the Lord spoke to me in a dream. I don't know if, if, if there was a mass group of people who could hear the Lord speaking or people just began to come to that divine realization and they're hearing his voice, but the Bible says the Lord spoke to Israel. There's something direct here. 
This is not through the angel of the Lord, the Malach Yahweh. It's not through a prophet. It's not through a guardian. He's just talking to all Israel. Either putting it on their hearts or putting it in their ears. Again, I don't know, but there's no intercessor here. There's no mediator. It is just Yahweh straight to Israel. The Lord said to Israel, verse 11, did I not deliver you, watch this, from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines, also when the Zidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hands. Isn't that interesting? Seven classes of pagan gods and now God responds with seven deliverances. I delivered you seven times. I have completely delivered you. I have offered you salvation over and over and over to you, over to, to a complete faithfulness. God is completely faithful while Israel is being completely rebellious. And it continues. Verse 13, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will no longer deliver you. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. Sons of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. Now that section is the longest, most detailed confession of sin in the book of Judges. Possibly the first legitimate one. I mean, in the past, Israel cried out. We talked about that word cried out. It simply means they went, ah, in their distress. It does not necessarily imply confession or heartfelt repentance. But in this case, boy, that sure sounds like repentance to me. We have sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you. That's the point where you say, whatever the punishment, I deserve it. So there does seem to be repentance. There seems to be confession here. It sounds heartfelt. Verse 16, so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. And that is the most jarring statement in the book of Judges. He could bear the misery of Israel no longer. I would like to tell you, and we've actually read it this way earlier in our study, that what this describes is the broken heart of a deeply compassionate God, that he just cannot stand their misery anymore, that it's just, it breaks his heart. His compassion is overwhelming, and so he wants to respond. And, and the reason we think that is because that's, that's God, right? He is a compassionate merciful, gracious, loving God, who when we cry out in repentance, he's waiting to save, he wants to save, his desire is to save. That is the nature of God. But in the translation, he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. I, I ask the question again, is there a time when God's loving patience runs out? Is there a time when righteousness surges above grace, and do we presume upon that patience? See, I think, and I take this as personal conviction, I think as Christians, we oftentimes presume upon the grace of God. We do what we're gonna do anyway, knowing it's out of line, knowing it's in rebellion, and yet, yeah, but it's Friday, church isn't until Sunday. We presume upon the loving kindness, he's going to forgive me. He's going to be okay with me. Is there a point where God says, enough, enough already? One of the premier scholars on the book of Judges, a man by the name of Daniel Block, writes that scholars are not agreed on the sincerity of the people's second confession, nor on the nature of Yahweh's answer in verse 16. You might say, well, it seems obvious. He could bear the misery of Israel no longer. So, uh, so at that point, you know, it's just God's compassion coming. Well, maybe, maybe not. The traditional consensus we see translated in the New American Standard Bible, we see it in the uh, New International Version and several other versions. I think the ESV gets it right. Well, how, how's it different? 
It's not he could bear the misery of Israel no longer, but the literal translation, if you just take it Hebrew word by Hebrew word, it is his being was short because of the miserable effort of Israel, which is a very different statement. His being was short because of the miserable efforts of Israel. Let me break that down for you. It's important to understand where God's heart is and what's happening in this moment. The verse starts with an old Hebrew saying, one of those, those, those Hebrew idioms, and it's tiksar nefesh, tiksar nefesh. And, and what it means is his soul is short. His being is short. The phrase is a statement of exasperation. I am getting short with you kids, we might say, and the phrase itself indicates that, a shortness, a frustration, an exasperation of being. And then when it says the misery of Israel, the word misery is ba'amal, which in the context and in translation means their miserable work, their miserable toil. In other words, God is done. They're crying out in confession and repentance. God is done with their empty, meaningless religious works. They have cried wolf one time too many. And the Lord is just short with it. He is exasperated. And by the way, it is neither the first nor is it the last time when God says, I've had it. Remember when God said, I had it with Israel and said to Moses, I'm gonna wipe them out. We're gonna start all over with you. Which is funny to me because Moses was in his 80s. <laughs> Let's just start over with you, Moses. He's like, hold on there, Lord. And Moses pleads with the Lord, and the Lord, the Bible says, repents of his decision, changes his mind. Wait, can the Lord do that? That's not the sermon this morning. You gotta deal with that on your own. But the Lord turns and says, all right. And he gives Israel yet another chance. We see this over and over and over, and then listen to this, Isaiah chapter one, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah at that time didn't exist. They had been fried. They were history. They were done literally millennia before. Who's he talking to? Israel. God is referring through the prophet Isaiah to his people Israel as Sodom and Gomorrah. This is how bad it is when Isaiah begins to prophesy. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? You see, the temple was in play. Hezekiah was king. The sacrifices were going on. The priests were doing their job. People were showing up religiously to do what they were supposed to do. And God says, I am sick of it. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Shabbat and calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. You might say he, his, his being was short because of their miserable efforts. It goes on and says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Some of you are listening to this right now and going, oh man, this is heavy and negative. I, man, Blue Monday was nothing compared to this Sunday. <laughs> Stay with me. He says in verse 16, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. You're coming to temple on Saturday and the rest of the week, you're defiling my temple in your behavior. By the way, remember the body is the temple of the Lord today. He says, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan. Hollow religiosity in any world religion is all show no heart. All show no heart. Israel in Judges 10 is repenting, they're confessing, and God's saying, it's all show no heart. I'm fed up. I'm done. 
enough. All show. It's optics. No honesty. It's going through the motions without any sense of who God really is, the true God. And the challenge to me this morning is, oh, Lord, am I showing up for yet another service, going through the motions, or am I recognizing you for who you are? Is my heart broken over the sinful things that I have done in this last week, over my behaviors and my attitudes and my faithlessness? Am I truly coming before a righteous God and recognizing he is a righteous, holy, pure, and perfect God? And I am not worthy of his presence. There's no sense of true God. See, that's religion. That's why if, if you look throughout the continent of, of Europe, where during the days of a Charles Spurgeon, when D.L. Moody actually went over there, why would 30,000 people show up to listen to Moody? Because, because there was a sense of faith in the land. The Puritans were strong in the land. That was the hub, the center. It's interesting, if you track Christianity, how it started in the Middle East and moved west through the continent, through Europe, and then across the seas into America, and now it's gone back around. It's like big in Africa, and it's growing by leaps and bounds again in the Middle East. Christian faith, trust in the Lord Jesus, and yet it seems like it goes by like a storm and then begins to wane. And you look at the continent of Europe right now where it's hard to find an open church. And it's truly a tragedy to know that the, the, the geography of Charles Spurgeon, the London of today, it's more a London of, I don't know, the Beatles than of the Puritans. Rick, you're old school saying the Beatles. Oh, no, no, no. The, the, the connection still rolls on today. God looks at the people and his being is short because of their miserable efforts. And by the way, if you just end chapter 10, there's no resolution. The statement is made and that's it. And there's a silence that follows, a, 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 a very concerning silence. For all this people's religious confessions and attempts to prove themselves, the narrative, the narrative closes out more cold, gray, and hopeless than any Blue Monday has ever been. And there's nothing they can do about it. God's done. You ever felt like that? You ever wonder, Lord, are you just done with me? Are you just through with my family? Are you done with America? Are you through with this world? Listen very carefully now. There is only one thing that can mollify God's perfect justice. Only one thing that can satisfy the righteousness of God. And it's not your sweet confessions. And it is not my wordy repentance. And it's not even our firm resolve this year to change our behavior. There is one thing, and it is his amazing grace. It is his grace. In fact, Isaiah 1.18, after that whole passage says, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool if you consent and obey. Come now. Let me wash you clean. Let me make you white as snow. Remember what we quoted earlier on, Romans 5, 5, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And what's remarkable here, and you need to recognize this, is at this moment where it seems like it's done, it's finished, God has said enough, no more grace, no more deliverance, I am through with your miserable efforts, Israel. At this same moment, historically, a Moabite widow follows her mother-in-law back to Israel. There she meets a man named Boaz, and they marry and Ruth becomes the great-grandma of a shepherd named David. As God is saying to Israel, enough! 
He's calling Ruth to enter the line of the Messiah. I just, that just stirs my heart and it, it warms my soul that the only thing that can possibly override the exasperation of God's pure righteousness with our unruly sinfulness is the compassion of Yahweh's amazing grace. See, that compassion is there. That mercy is in play. Part three, divine intention. Go back to Judges 10, and I wanna go back to the brief bios of those two so-called minor judges because there's a couple other things I wanna pull out and show you right here that speak again to the divine intent. These may seem as minor guardians to us, but they are filled with major hints of the divine intent of the Lord. Verse one again, now after Avimelech died, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, I just love that, a man of Issachar, arose to save Israel. He lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years, and he died, and he was buried in Shamir. Note this quickly. I told you already that Tola means worm. Some of you already picked up on it. You Bible students know exactly where I'm going with this. Tola means worm. Tola is a name of a worm. It's an actual worm, the Tola worm. Tola is the exact word Jesus used to describe himself prophetically in Psalm 22, verse four, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm I'm a Tola and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Jesus said that. Psalm 22 is the psalm of the cross and you hear the heart of Jesus crying out through David in Psalm 22. I'm a Tola. I'm a worm. And Tola also translates scarlet. Tola (laughs) O'Hara. Scarlet that deep blood-red color that we see drizzled across the pages of Scripture. Tola. The reason Tola means both worm and scarlet is because the Tola worm was used to create a blood-red dye, a rich dye that was used in fabrics and clothing and robes. And they would take the Tola worms and they literally would grind them into this pasty red substance. It's what you get out of a Tola worm. If you had a Tola worm on a tree branch, you just kind of went... It would, it would be a scarlet red color that would emerge from this worm, and they use that as dye. But the worm itself, if you've heard this, I marvel at this every time I, I return to it. The Tola worm itself, when it's time to reproduce, will climb a tree and, and out onto a branch and lay its eggs and then literally cover over the eggs to protect them with its body. As the larvae underneath the Tola worm hatch, they eat their way through the mother until they come out enriched and and alive and ready to live, obviously having killed the Tola worm. They eat their way all the way through the same worm that gave them life. John 6, 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink and he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. The Tola worm, a picture when Jesus says, I am a worm and he says it on the cross. By the way, when the young are finished with the Tola, they leave a distinct scarlet mark on the limb as the young little tolas, you know, scurry away. There's that scarlet mark that's left on the limb of the tree, but given a day or two or three, that scarlet turns snowy white and will flake off the tree. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will be like Wool. And notice again that verse one says, Tola arose to save Israel, which is exactly why Jesus came the first time. To the Jew first, Jesus came. In fact, Matthew chapter 10, verse five says, Jesus sent out the 12 after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, 
Do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As Paul said, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Tola first arose to save Israel. But there's more. There's more. The place where Tola, the judge, here in Judges chapter 10, lived and died is Shamir. And the name Shamir means thorns. The pictures are amazing when you dig. Thorns. And with that, Tola is the only guardian of all the guardians, and I think this is significant, whose name is written down with a multi-generational genealogy. That is, not only his father is listed, but his grandfather as well. He is Tola, son of Pua, son of Dodo, which in our language sounds really funny. And yet, and yet, Pua or Puva means splendid, and Dodo means beloved. So what's the divine intent? What's the picture here? Jesus, who was splendid, the only beloved son of God, became a worm bearing the crown of thorns to die in our place. Our hope is Jesus. Our hope is Jesus. Even when God says enough, he has given his son. And he knew he would as little Ruth is making her way back to Israel right now, right at this time. Our hope is in Jesus. Well, what about Yair? What about Yair? Good question. Yair, his name means he enlightens. He enlightens. John 1, verse 4, in him, that is, Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. This is something darkness does not comprehend, does not understand, that even as God expresses absolute divine exasperation with an unruly people and their too late confessions, even while that's taking place, he is moving with determination to the blessed hope to bring Jesus into this world to save a lost people and to bring redemption where it is not deserved but it is offered by the grace and truth that is Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter two, verse 12 says, so then my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't go clomping into heaven. Go worshiping. Go in awe. Go trembling. Go thankful. For it is God, listen, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Can you even comprehend the divine intentions of God? That even when he says enough, Jesus is fulfilling the divine intentions. Laid in before the foundation of the world. God's intent before Adam and Eve took breath was that he was gonna provide for unruly humanity to find salvation, and it would come only in Jesus, who himself would be the satisfaction of God's righteousness. And that is, that is such great news. That's the good news. I can't imagine the Lord isn't reaching the point of enough with this world, with this culture. I would have been enough 20 years ago. The Lord is patient. Thank God the Lord is patient. But as I said when we began, if there's one prophetic certainty, it's this, that the end will come. I believe quickly. I believe it is upon us. But the greatest certainty is Jesus Christ. He is our hope. It's not church. It's not religion. And yet, and yet, our being here increases faith in him. And he is the point always has been, oh Israel, oh church, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, it's the one verse in our study through Judges so far that truly has made me shudder, that you are short, you are exasperated with their miserable works, 
And it reminds us again today that there is no amount of religiosity that can make us righteous. It is but the blood of Jesus that saves us. It is to your blood, Lord Jesus, that we appeal, your sacrifice, your perfection, that cleanses us and makes us, as your word declares, white as snow. And it is only because of that. And we respond to you this morning with such thanksgiving. Our worship, our confession, even our repentance, Lord, it is because of what you have already done. And so my prayer is if anyone among us needs to repent of sin, needs to turn back to you, has a broken heart that needs to cry out and confess, that they will do so, not thinking that that will save, but recognizing that you already have through Jesus. Lord, all the glory is yours because of what you've done and who you are. And we come humbly before you today saying, thank you, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, we pray you do your work among us and in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.